1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Hello, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, Commissioning Editor at the TLS, and what you're about to listen to is a special episode of our podcast. It's part of a mini-series of discussions and debates recorded last month at our London Lit Fest, a day of literary exploration and discovery. Our normal weekly show will return on January the 5th, once the editor Stig Abel and I have emerged from a seasonal mince pie and port-induced stupor. Perhaps I'm just speaking for myself there. If you don't already know our podcast, have a listen. You'll find all previous episodes on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our books of the year from a few weeks ago might be of particular interest for this reflective time of year. Subscribe. It's free. In the meantime, though, here's something to tide you over. Television, perhaps especially at this time of year, is saturated with literary adaptations. To discuss the ins and outs of it all, we brought together Mary Beard, no introduction needed, surely, David Farr, whose recent credits include The Night Manager, and the novelist and literary adaptee Alan Hollinghurst.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to be talking about literary adaptation, past, present and perhaps even Uh, to a small extent future, Uh, and I hope after that um, you will either stay around or indeed come back again um, for the two later talks this afternoon, brought uh, to you by the uh, Times Literary Supplement. I'm Alan Jenkins from the Times Literary Supplement. our speakers, our guest speakers this afternoon are going to be discussing, later on this afternoon, are going to be discussing um, Shakespeare and Cervantes on the threshold of the modern world. You won't have, it won't have escaped your notice that 2016 is the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare, but also of Cervantes. So those two towering figures will be brought together in a talk this afternoon. And then, last thing, um, later on uh, this evening, uh, the most overrated and underrated authors of the past 50 years. Uh, about whom or which I'm sure you all have very strong opinions, so it would be lovely to have you back for that, to, um, to shout them at us, as my colleague Michael Caine said earlier. Uh, but for the moment, um, to literary adaptation, uh, and I have three extremely distinguished guests with me this afternoon to discuss that topic. Mary Beard, who is Professor of Classics at the University of Cambridge, and Royal Academy of Arts Professor of Ancient Literature. She's also the classics editor of the TLS and the author of a hugely popular blog, Adon's Life. Her books include The Parthenon, The Colosseum, and the best-selling Pompeii, The Life of a Roman Town, and SBQR, A History of Ancient Rome, published this year. She's well known to audiences of A Point of View on Radio 4 and has shared her expertise with millions through her television programs about life in ancient Rome and its empire. David Farr has been artistic director of the Gate Theater, the Bristol Old Vic and the Lyric Hammersmith and an associate director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. His recent theater work uh, has included revelatory and sometimes controversial productions of Tamburlaine, The Birthday Party, The Winter's Tale and King Lear. His own plays have been produced at the National and Royal Shakespeare Theatres, and he wrote and directed the film The Ones Below, which came out earlier this year, as did, of course, his bold and widely acclaimed adaptation of John le Carre's novel The Night Manager for BBC One. Alan Hollinghurst is the author of five novels, all of which have been published to great critical acclaim and have earned him an unassailable reputation as one of England's preeminent contemporary novelists. He was awarded a Somerset Maugham Award for the Swimming Pool Library and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for the Folding Star. The Line of Beauty won the Man Booker Prize in 2004 and his most recent novel, The Stranger's Child, was long listed for that same prize in 2011. The Line of Beauty was adapted by Andrew Davies for a three-part television series in 2006. Um, and I'd like to turn to you first, Alan. 2006 is already a little while ago, but if you don't mind casting your mind back to okay, that adaptation, and I'd love to hear—and I know the audience would love to hear—about your experience of being the adaptee of having your, of seeing your novel adapted for the small screen, uh, the kinds of things you thought perhaps worked well that came over well, and perhaps also those that perhaps didn't quite so much.
4: Yes, it was a strange, to me, a new experience. I mean, my, the swimming pool library had been very brilliantly adapted by my late friend Kevin Elliott for BBC Two, and that they sat on it for a couple of years and then decided not to make it. So oh dear. that was a useful sort of lesson in the, in the fact that actually almost everything proposed doesn't get made. Ah, um, And I think the reason that The Line of Beauty did get made was purely because Andrew Davis, who adapted it, um, was very keen from the start. And he said that he would um, option it himself if you know, the BBC didn't want to. And that drove it through sort of right. rather quickly. Yep. Um, and I have to say I absolutely loved and was fascinated by the whole process. And I loved going to see it being filmed, He said, there's nothing more boring than uh, you know, do the same thing over and over again. Mm. But, I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> um, the whole experience, I suppose what it really did, it taught me simple, but nonetheless, for, um, profound lessons about the difference between the, the medium of, of um, the written page and the screen. Um, and the extraordinary, I think which I never can get my mind around or stop marvelling about, that the novel is created absolutely uniquely by every single person who reads it. Um, and even if something is described as happening in Trafalgar Square, everybody who reads the novel will imagine Trafalgar Square in their own
3: terms.
4: Um, And that the the way in which the reader contributes to and essentially half invents the novel themselves in the process of reading it um, is is a sort of marvellous thing. Um, With a film, of course, everybody sees exactly the same. There's Trafalgar Square. Um, So there's a strange sort of um, increased specificity about things um, and things which are merely on the margin um, mm. or not evoked at all in the description of a scene in the novel have to be present um, on screen. Um, in a novel, the, the writer directs the, the reader's attention very specifically. I mean, the reader can only see those things which are a- actually um, pointed out to them. Yes. Um, in the screen, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. Um, and I found that fascinating, and it led to all sorts of questions about what these characters were doing when they weren't. Uh, I was asked, you know, what would somebody have, have, have had for breakfast or um, what did they do?
3: Order? Oh, you mean by way of helping the actors yes, to interpret yes, their. Yes, yeah. so
4: they, um, what, what did this woman do? Or the faintest idea <laughs> It's no, no business of mine what she did, or they. Uh, and I remember we were filming a, we were filming a scene where <coughs> at twelve, was sort of. Um, we were, could be heard through through a bedroom wall having having sex in the next ah, yes. from, from, from the bathroom. Yes. And uh, she came to me uh, uh, rather concerned after a sort of run through and said, uh, "Do you think um, Catherine always faked her orgasms?" Catherine uh, <laughs> I, I, I faint, idea. Uh, I think I, I, I just said, uh, "I wonder." Uh, uh, so,
3: so, uh, dare I say something that you might not have had a tremendous <laughs> amount of personal it never experience? There are
4: <laughs> so, all those, w- those ways in which reality you know, <laughs> impinged on something which before it did, surely, Indeed, in yeah, the head. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
3: I mean, you, you mentioned the specificity of some things kind of going missing, and other things being rather more specific than you perhaps would have wanted or intended yes. in in writing of the novel. But of course, one of the things that a reader takes from your books and i i don't think i mean there couldn't be a reader of them who doesn't take this is the the voice the wonderful uh, both specificity and resonance of the voice uh, the, na- the narrating voice the writer's voice the density and evocativeness of the way you describe things, for example, the, the finely poised ironies of your narration and the exquisite cadences. And, of course, those, you can't really have those in a visual medium. You can't really, you, that, that cannot be conveyed without the rather over-artificial business of a, of a voiceover. Yes. I, don't, I think voiceovers probably are.
4: I mean, I was put off those from the, yep. from the, the old Brideshead Revisited, you know. Yeah. Jeremy Irons dream about. about <laughs> <how it is. laughs> yes, um, I, I always think they actually sort of kill, kill, um, sort of screen narrative. Voice, yes, think. but I mean that's my, my own feeling about it. Yes, I and mean, there are all those things which, I suppose, are part of the prose texture. Perhaps, but there are uh, also details of the imagined world of the book. I mean, particularly things about buildings which I'd paid a great deal of attention to. Indeed. Um, and, uh, as a family of sort of a Jewish banking family, and I deliberately given them a house, rather like the sort of Rothschild houses in Buckinghamshire, um, a sort of French-style chateau. Um, I don't think the locations people cast around all that far <laughs> to drive. No, we ended up just with the standard issue. I mean, a very handsome classical country house with a pediment. Um, yes.
3: Which is, I don't know if... if you no, know. I remember it. It seemed a little yeah. bit grander, possibly, than that, the house in the book.
4: completely unlike...
3: Um, yeah. Well, uh, the, sp- the specificity that i
4: yes. had asked for, uh, and I saw it uh, about three weeks later I was watching another novel adaptation and it was exactly the same
3: <laughs> 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 that's <always a laughs> David, if I may turn to you uh, as the uh, poacher, if you like in this um, in this enterprise, the adapter and the very successful uh, adapter of John Le Carre's novel, The Night Manager, um, seen earlier this year, and I'm sure seen by most people, if not everyone in this room. Um, it's a very plotty novel. It's a very complex... Le Carre always goes in for s- sort of rather um, extremely complex plots, not so rather hard-to-follow plots. And c- when you're making a piece for television, or a series for television, as you were, it has to be coherent, cohesive, and above all, gripping. Um, what, how, how did you sort of approach a very plotty and complex story like that and what, how did you began, begin to sort of draw out the, the, a, a picture of something that would be absolutely as riveting as it was
5: um, well, <coughs> well I feel very loud but anyway um, I. the thing about Lucario which I discovered afterwards uh, he, he told me this later is that although the plot is complex actually what every story he's ever written he claims that he can write the story Mm. and there's a very key difference between these two things on the back of a postcard right uh and i didn't know that at the time but when i reread the book when i was offered it uh and i didn't remember it very well i i it wasn't the book that grabbed me when i first read it i'll be absolutely honest i used to read a lot of his because i saw uh smiley's people with my dad when i was about 13 and it really was a fantastic moment for me because I really felt like, oh, I want to do that. I don't want to, I, it was really interesting, I don't want to write novels, I want to do whatever this person is doing with drama, that's what I want to do because uh, I, I love the suspense of just a simple scene of um, Alec Guinness and Beryl Reid sitting in that, in that strange Location together and the yes. weird mixture of emotion and loss, but then this yep. incredibly suspenseful narrative. Yes. And he really yes. needs to find something out. Yep. So, the him needing to find something out is the plot. Yep. You know, he really needs the information about the Sandman, mm. but the story is a very different thing. And the story of Smiley's people is essentially Smiley's redemptive story of losing his wife and through the nemesis of Carla, and actually weirdly helping Carla, Hmm. redeem himself Hmm. through the daughter. So it's all about daughters and and it's about women. Now the Night Manager is fundamentally a a father-son story, which if you look at Le Carre, an awful lot of Le Carre are father-son stories. It's a, a, a boy who's lost his father, who is in a sense the good angel of his life, and has to rediscover his own manhood, I suppose you might say, through defeating the, the surrogate father figure, the, the demonic Roper. surrogate mm-hmm. figure. And then he has in the book the good angel uncle, uh, Leonard Burr. Uh, and so there's a sort of slightly Faustian thing as well, which I used quite a lot, mm-hmm. which is very simply, Pine is Faust, there's a good angel, there's a bad angel, there's Mephisto. Which way is he going to go? And that's all I did, really. And the plot stuff, which had to change completely because I obviously updated it. Yes. The plot stuff is, I'm not something that is too... I mean it's it's fiddly yes. and to be perfectly honest i think probably if, like, if you asked anyone what the plot is of that they would be like oh it's something to do with arms and there's a, no. it's it's not the stuff that we, we that's not why we watch this stuff but what's interesting is you, that mechanism yeah. you need yeah. you need that yeah. strong mechanism and if there's a, a something implausible it gets in the way and then as a viewer we're not we don't feel Permission to enter the really interesting stuff because we're our brain's in the wrong place. Absolutely. We're worrying about, <coughs> well, that's not real, he wouldn't do that. And the yeah. So our brain is not, our heart isn't, basically, our heart's not engaging. It's because it's not, quite rightly, our brain is not allowing it to.
3: No, uh, I, I mean, I got completely lost in uh, Smiley's People. I had no idea what was going on, really, part yeah. of the time in Smiley's People, because it was the, you know, the, the antagonists were perfectly clear on what was going on, going on, but really what was happening. While Smiley was trying to work out yeah. negotiating Carla into a position where he couldn't kind of not defect, as it were, or come That's over, right. uh, was absolutely beyond me. Um, That's part of its appeal. Wasn't absolutely, it?
5: yeah. you couldn't understand it.
3: Yeah, no, you couldn't yeah. understand yeah. it. Even yeah. 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 sort of Raymond Chandler-esque. Yeah, the, I mean, but the, night, the
5: Night Manager is different. Yes, exactly. Exactly. In a way, the antagonist of Smiley's People is, is absent. Yes, which is very interesting. Whereas the antagonist of the Night Manager is completely present, although we held him back. Um, but he's present, and, and that becomes the engagement. It's an, almost an erotic engagement between the two men. And that yeah. that yeah. was something I got very interested by. I think Lacaille is a very sexual writer. Mm-hmm. Much, much, mm-hmm. much underestimated how sexual he is in mm-hmm. terms of everything that's going on in
3: the characters. You yeah. mentioned um, Burr, who of course in the novel is is a, a, as you said a good uncle. Mm. Uh, in your adaptation, um, he becomes a good aunt. A mm. she. Um, and what led you to do, what, what, where did that idea come from? I mean, it's, I think it was a brilliant stroke, and it works terrifically well, um, but... It, it wasn't, uh,
5: So it was a decision that came, essentially what happened was, I, I, my very strong approach to Le Carre was, I want to update it to the Arab Spring. Yes. The original book, if you haven't read it, is set in Central America in the 90s. It's very much to do with Iran-Contra kind of time, Oliver North and all of that. Uh, I, and when I read it, I had this, this very strong instinct that, we, we, the Arab Spring was the most perfect starting-off point for, and that we should set it in the, in the Arab world and make that the politic. Yeah. So that meant, of course, that it was set now. And there are things that have changed in the last 20 years, I- even in the intelligence services. I think, everyone, I think 9-11 caused a major revisionist, understandably, in the intelligence and security services. So they have broadened hugely their, their appeal. And that kind of gentleman's club, Le Carré World, that is fun the Tinker Taylor world
3: in fact where you exactly. just have four guys and one of them has got to be the spy yeah. and they're up it, I, it's, it's, not, only
5: it's not real anymore and it no. would feel it would feel literary Yeah. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I like about Le Carre on screen when, the, when it's good is that it doesn't feel literary mm. even though I think he's a genuinely a good writer um, uh, but that would have felt like a sort of a sort of like a fake world, a world yes. that was only existed in literature. Yes. Uh, and one simple thing, I just, I mean, we talked about, we were talking about women generally, and everyone kept giving me notes saying, make sure the girl's interesting. And I was like, what, I, what that really means is something's not right somewhere else. So I sort of went, you don't really, I mean, the girl will be interesting, but the girl is the girl. I mean, yes. You know. so, uh, we, so I said, what about if we make Burr a woman? And everyone fell down and Lacaro. <laughs> but Lacaro was great. He went was away he? and thought about it for two weeks and came back and went, Yes, so long as she remains the intellectual heart of the piece.
3: <laughs> 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 so, um, well, David, I happen to know one, one of your um, pro- next projects um, is very much a, a, a man's story in a way, although it all starts with a girl. All right? Um,
5: uh, it's not, I'm,
3: like, di- I'm going to dispute that, but you must tell them. What okay. To well, okay. Um, it's you're, you're doing a, a, a work a, a um, I am big on a cinema version of the, the Trojan story, in fact, the Trojan War. Um, and for TV. Ah, uh, for TV. F- oh, for TV. Um, well, that, in a way, sort of surely begins with Helen. I mean, it's got a strong part for, for the girl, put it she's, like that.
5: She's the lead part. In, yeah. the, in, our, in my version, she, it's about her.
3: Right. It's I, not, it's I, it's not.
5: Euripides did that before, you know. Ah, you
3: know? Well, I, I was just, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted to but bring his, Mary.
5: His, his Helen is fictional.
3: Mary, <laughs> no, Mary, uh, Mary has brilliantly brought herself in at this point, which I, <laughs> I, she's, she's preempted me, I'm glad to say so. I wanted to bring Mary in because I know that she has views about adaptations of, of uh, Homer and the Troy. Trojan story of Troy, and indeed uh, everything else from the ancient world. So, Mary.
6: Yes, I I want to. The stage is yours. Yeah, I'm. I I will plough into Troy towards (laughs) the end of what I've got to say. I mean, I'm I'm here. I think a a perfect position of neither being an adapter or an adaptee. I can't see anybody ever wanting to film anything I've written. I'm pleased to say. Uh, Um, Oh,
3: Mary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we've been all around we've You've been all around Pompeii we've, be we've watched you um, take us around Pompeii mm, and yes, then gone and re- gone and read the book. Um,
6: the closest I come to being an adapter is being sent emails by um, people making some fictionalized version of ancient Rome and it's fits absolutely with um, Alan's uh, specificity point. They're always wanting to say so so what breed dog should we have <laughs> in there? And you think you don't mind that you've got the whole bloody stuff completely wrong <laughs> but you really want to get the dog right you know like, really annoys me
3: when you say the whole bloody stuff i mean that's well, your you, next point
6: you know that the idea in particular and this is usually in drama docs yes. in some vague way based on classical literature right does you know, all be converted into you know trump in america or whatever and then they get really anxious about whether they've got the right breed dog you know
3: to to Troy specifically for a moment
6: I want to go through because I think Troy is the sad um, reductio ad absurdum really of classical adaptations but I think we need to start a bit more kind of perkily, because I think that for me you know thinking about this um, I think that although I'm going to talk about the ancient world and adaptations of ancient literature, or, or adaptations of modern books about of about the ancient world. I think there are things that really plough into um, a, a more modern reading of this. And I think Rome, Rome in particular, is very interesting because you know, cinema started with Rome. Really, that you know, m- many, very many of the early adaptations of anything was somehow trying to yeah. bring ancient Rome to life. Yeah. So it's got a really privileged position uh, in terms of how we see the engagement of cinema and later television with earlier literature and earlier history. And I think some of those things have been absolutely stunning. And I think that television, amongst others, have really have done, done adaptations that are better than, the, than than the source text, and, and my, my classic example here would be uh, the BBC, I, Claudius. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have been warned not to look at it again. <laughs> <laughs> I have been warned that if I look at it again, I'll see that all the scenery well, shaking. you
3: see the pillars shaking, yeah, don't you, you know, in the temple. That's a bit.
6: But I still have it in my head as when I first watched it. Um, and I watched it, and I think this is always interesting, chronology. I watched it before I read I, Claudius. Right. And I think that, that there's an, mm. an interesting difference of relationship, whether you see the film or read the book first. But I have to say that I watched I, Claudius, and when I then decided to read the book shortly afterwards, I was extremely disappointed, you know, that I, I had got the picture from... The television, that this was a brilliant close up micro domestic analysis of the machinations of the Roman court. And I discovered there were chapters where they're all like fighting the bloody barbarians, you know, somewhere quite other. And I also discovered that none, absolutely none of my favourite lines were in it. You know, I don't. don't You're probably too young an audience. Remember this, but you know, I I remember. Has anyone in Rome not slept with my daughter? (laughs) Right? Not in the book. That's rather good. (laughs) (laughs) Jack Pullman, screenwriter, brilliant. And there's also that wonderful, wonderful bit where Livia has just killed off Augustus, and we've had that very famous five minutes of Augustus's dying face on screen Um, and she's done it because he's a canny old bird and he's always had his food tasted but she knew that he was partial to figs directly from the tree Mm. so she's painted um, the figs with poison he's picked them off never thinking to get fruit from the tree um tasted and of course it kills him uh Tiberius her chosen heir comes in and uh as Livia goes out to kind of attend to girls things she says to him in a slightly camp way by the way Tiberius don't touch the figs right (laughs) and I thought that was Graves too never 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 occurred to Robert (laughs) Graves never (laughs) occurred to Robert Graves now in some ways of course as we know from having read about that series you know there was virtue here uh, Snatched from the jaws of necessity, the reason why they never went outside the palace, because they couldn't afford to go anywhere Mm. on location. So it became that brilliantly appropriate, intimate sitting room story, Mm. um, because they couldn't do the sort of gladiator bit. The
3: necessities of a new medium, in fact.
6: So, in some ways, I thought it was really interesting for that. But, you know, to get more towards Troy...
3: Well, Troy, I mean, there's been a very, very big Hollywood blockbuster about Troy. I mean, massive expense has been spared.
6: But I think we've got to go (coughs) in two two stages to this. Yep. One thing I think is interesting is that... on film and television media, Rome has always been more successful than Greece, you know. that If you start thinking about ancient movies, movies adapted from either the literature of or the literature about the ancient world, you know, Jason and the Argonauts, despite somebody who said they loved it earlier on, Jason and the Argonauts doesn't come very high up, you know, it's Ben-Hur, Spartacus, Sign of the Cross, I, Claudius, up Pompeii, which
0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
6: It is effectively um, an adaptation of Roman comedy, and a brilliant adaptation, such a brilliant adaptation of Roman comedy that we don't even realize that it's an adaptation.
3: Let's not leave out the funny thing that happened to me on the way to the yeah. forum or whatever it Which was.
6: Which is I an adaptation of, <laughs> of Plotus. Yep. Right. So and I'm interested in two things then. First of all, why Greece has never managed to be big box office. You know, even Alexander the Great was very silly. You know, or big critically acclaimed box office. And that's partly, I think, because of what I said before about Rome being rooted in film. Mm and film being rooted in Rome, uh-huh. that actually we can envisage. We have made the Romans filmic characters. That's how right. film started for us. And Greece and Greek literature has always been difficult. But I think that the, I mean, the other big question, which is, is, in a sense, this is going to David's Troy project. Yep. Yep. The other big question is, for me, the most puzzling lacuna, really, which is the way that Greek and Roman myth and epic somehow never manages to hit the spot. And Homer, in particular, has been an absolutely disaster area, it seems to me, on films. Now, that's not because it's a disaster area in terms of all kinds of different forms of adaptation. You know, Christopher Logue, War Music, etc. is a brilliant adaptation of the Iliad, and to go to film, um, the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother Where Art Thou was a brilliant adaptation in some way of the Odyssey. But if somebody tries to do Troy, the Troy story, and I'm hoping that David's going to uh, undermine this, if they try to <laughs> he's not, he's to not do looking it too happy really at the moment. <laughs> I mean, the the Vulcan, Peterson Troy, which came out a few years ago, was terrible, but it was only the worst of a very long stream of the bad, right? <laughs> and, you know, it, it, so I think it actually helped you, you know, see what was so terrible. You know, it was, it was a kind of sex, very expensive sixth form dressing up mm. as Trojan heroes, you know, done by a group of actors who had absolutely no idea what this... Story was all about. You know, I, I, you know, I look at Brad Pitt. I looked it. You can get it on YouTube free. Don't spend any money on it. You can get it on YouTube free, even subtitled. And actually, seeing the words come up in writing in the subtitle <laughs> makes it even worse than listening to them. So they don't know how to do it, uh, and the the kind of. I mean, I'm, I'm all for changing the plot. What the hell, you know? I was very happy as I said to see I, Claudius, never going outside the palace, you know, even though big issues come out when they're fighting. But why Briseis had to kill Agamemnon when it is, compl- I mean, just completely going against the whole bloody plot of the Iliad, and for no reason whatever. Mm. And gratuitous, Amdram. Mm. Now, I think it's only the worst, you can pay as much money as you like, you still get it bad. And sort of my question then is—is hey, is well, I'd love to know. How Hang on, I
3: asked the questions here. <laughs>
6: <laughs> my question is why, you know, why can epic film not do epic poetry?
3: David, I well, guess. I'm. I'm- I don't think I'm not going to ask David to answer the case but I would like to ask I mean I I know that one of the very original and um, bolder strokes that you're hoping to pull off in your uh version of the trojan story is that you're seeing it from the trojan point of view mm-hmm. i mean we only we we, we get it historically and e- even in the adaptations from the greek point of view yeah. it's it's the winner's history isn't it okay
6: apart, um, apart may i just add a little word <laughs> for euripides here you know euripides has been there before ah, what is the trojan women apart from the attempt uh-huh. to see the trojan war from women? Yeah, and with, he's <laughs>
5: my favorite dramatist so <laughs> well uh, uh, he really is my favourite dramatist. I think Euripides mm-hmm. is a genius, and and uh, he, I mean, we should do him more. I mean, he's, he's for me he's, his dialogue is more modern than anything. I mean, obviously, one has it translated, but the condensation. of, I mean, obviously, Mary knows more about the language than me. I don't speak much English. I've been learning it, which is interesting. Uh-huh. But um, but it, the, the the real the real <coughs> issue that Mary is highlighting, and we actually had a chat about this before. We do. There's an there's an agreement here, which is that. Rome, has a, Rome basically has a precinct, which is a film-television idea that you have a, a known world. Uh, and as Mary says, it's even helped by the fact that Hollywood has slightly, slightly created our understanding of what that known world looks like. Whereas what you're having in, 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 in Greek epic is an entirely oral tradition, which is uh, passed on through language wonderfully. And so the, the, the temptation to adapt is huge. And I've adapted The Odyssey on stage and found that very releasing, very, very easy. I, I set it in a, it was very political, contemporary production set around uh, detainees, actually probably would work now, actually, strangely mm. enough. It was essentially Odysseus ends up in a refugee center uh, it, it, and it all came out of that. And that, the theater can do that. The Theatre is wonderful. You can sort of mix old and new. You can crash cultures against each other. No one really minds. You just watch it. It's, It's in a live space. And unquestionably, the literalness or realism that is inherent to camera, to film, presents a problem uh, when you are dealing with epic. And therefore, quite simply, you have to kind of lose the epic, weirdly, I think, for it to work. Um, What I mean by that is you don't necessarily have to change the story, but you have to enter what I think of as the psychological realm, because that's what film and that's what film and television does brilliantly. Yes. Uh, and, the, and, that, and, and, of course, Homer does not really exist in that way. I mean, Homer is it's a different language, a whole different thing. And if people speak like they're in Homer on screen, it's going to be chronically dreadful. So they almost have to speak like they're in Flaubert in, in Troy, which is kind of weird. But that's, um, that's sort of how it's very weird. my approach of it is, essentially, yeah. is a little bit Madame bovary uh, in in Troy, uh, wow. uh, slightly,
3: and that you heard it here first. Being a little
5: a little witty about it, but psychologizing, and so it becomes Helen's narrative. It becomes right. about uh-huh. a woman who is brought to a city that she doesn't doesn't belong to by a man who also doesn't doesn't belong to it because of his uh, the curse of his birth. And how do they survive in a city that's under siege because of them? Now that, to me, is dramatic. And I can, un- I Absolutely. can, un- for me, that's my starting point. I won't say more than that because I'm not allowed to. I've been banned from telling anyone of anything else. It's really annoying. But uh, but it, it's, it. But that sort of central idea is interesting. I find that interesting. I'd like. I want to explore that as a as a dramatist or as a storyteller. Um, and th- so then, in a way, the battles, the Homeric battles, take place in a sense. Hopefully, as much as possible, literally off camera, as Mary yes. was saying, or at least in a toned, in a way that is framed by that central drama. Yes, it's still f- uh, fraught with risk. I think that's rather exciting. I mean, uh, there, we all, everyone, can imagine in the room the bad version of this. It's and even if you haven't seen the, the, the film, which is truly terrible. Uh, it, it, you can imagine it anyway. You can imagine that the wrong hair and the terrible thing and the wooden acting and everything that's a staple we can all gloriously imagine
3: i don't Uh, know i'm madame bovary and troy
5: what's not to like you know what what can go wrong but but if you can get the madame bovary bit if you can get the the gaps between yes then then suddenly you might find yourself in rooms and i think it is about rooms actually with people that you really care about and that's a different Thing. It, it's, it's not, not going to be Homer. It shouldn't be Homer. No, exactly. It's not Homer. And I've never said it was. It's in other
3: words, to counter the, the literalism, as you, as you rightly put it, I think, of the medium, the realism of the medium, of the medium you're really taking the story by the scratch of its neck. I mean, yeah. everyone has so, done that. Shakespeare's done it.
5: Yeah, Royce has done it. Everyone's yeah. taken that myth and quite rightly yeah. readapted it for their time. It's when you s- have some f- hilariously ersatz notion of what Homer is it and is, you try yeah. and plonk that on screen that you're going to have real
3: problems. Well, we've brought up, we've touched on one or two sort of much more recent and uh, adaptations for TV and film of, of more m- you know, modern uh, 20th century books and we mentioned uh, when we were speaking earlier uh, and I think we touched on even here uh, the um, Brideshead adaptation which was almost kind of fanatically faithful um, as I recall, I haven't watched it for a while but I mean I do rec- it's almost as long, I mean ev- it, it takes a lot longer to watch than it takes to, to read the it book is, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> so that I mean there's there, there, there's a sort of literalism and a real I, I thought it worked I mean I I agree with Alan absolutely that the voiceover would seem a dreadful mistake But some of the acting and the I mean some dreadful. of that some of that fanaticism yeah. about detail and so on seemed to me to pay off it, it yeah. was a rather beautiful thing to watch can you think any of any other um, adaptations Alan that have sort of driven you either uh, to distraction with how sort of wrong or, or poor they seemed or or, per contra, by how brilliant they seem. I mean, I know that a writer that's been tremendously important to you all your life, really, is Henry James, and you would think, on the face of it, I think, again, a tremendously difficult writer I mean, to James adapt is, is for any a, medium other than... It's such, oh. a,
4: such an interesting case, yes, because, uh, again, let's talking about specificity, you know, yeah. James has this sort of horror of, of spe- specifying about, yes. about all sorts of things to do with sex, sex, money, all the things which are actually driving the, the narrative. Yeah. Um, and, there are undoubtedly different requirements of sort of generic requirements of, of different media. I mean, I think this is something which is yeah. emerging, isn't it? Indeed. Um, you indeed. Know, and I've seen the, the Merchant Ivory film of The Golden Bowl with Uma you know, Thur- Thurman as um, Charlotte Stanton. Actually, one of their best ones, I think. But it's it, absolutely not a patch on the early 70s Granada six-part adaptation, uh-huh. Gail, Gail Honeycutt and Daniel Massey. Uh-huh. Um, it's a masterpiece, um, and it, right. but partly, of course, because of the much greater time which is allowed mm. by, a, mm. by a TV series. So I mm. suppose, I mean, allowing for ads and things, but it's sort of five and a half hours long. You know. Wow. Um, yeah. So it preserves yeah, a lot of the, um, the dialogue mm. and the, the sustained sense of the sort of emotional and intellectual world of the, of the book. Similarly, it's all filmed in the studio. Hmm. Um, and so you get a, a heightened, rather claustrophobic sense of the sort of chamber drama uh, between, being played out between these characters. There's one sequence of about 25 seconds, which is actually shot in Kensington Gardens or something, which seems utterly surreal, you know, because the, uh, you become used to the, the appearance, the, the light, the acoustic, even of, the, of this sort of enclosed space. You know. Yeah, um, and it's, I think it's, I and mean, I don't know if it's still possible to get hold of it, but I think it's absolutely. Uh, Wonderful. I mean it raises another question too which is related to what we're saying about updating I think. Mm -hmm. uh, There was Ian Softley's um, film of the Wings of the Dove which came out in the sort of late 90s, I can't quite Mm. remember, with Helena Bonham Carter. Yes I saw it. Uh, um, Which shifts the story about ten years forward. uh, I hadn't realised that. So there's a strange scene where they're all uh, looking at um, some pa- paintings of Klimt, uh-huh. um, the Danaye of Klimt, was, which was actually painted about five years after the book. You wouldn't book have been created. able to see them, then, yeah. um, and it's part of an attempt to sort of draw out a, a sexual subtext. Of course, um, I think um, that is. I mean, also the, the. I mean, the Jane Campions, in a way, rather compelling film of um, the Portrait of a Lady, yes, mm. Nicole Kidman. Kim. I mean. James who so carefully conceals the, what, the truth of what's going on in the marriage of Gilbert Osmond and Isabel until that staggering, which I think is a great sort of turning point in the history of fiction, the great Sort of twenty-page vigil when Isabel sits up all night and, and, and she's having understand, sees the whole sort of shape of her life and everything that, that's gone. And it is. Yeah. Um, but in the film, we, we see um, John Malkovich actually be, being physically violent, violent to her, yeah, which is abusive. As you know, which is actually, yeah. you know I'm sure there's no suggestion in the book that Osmond was physically, um, but it completely sort of breaks the, the essential sort of psychological structure and, in a way, plausibility of the, of the, the narrative, which is all to do with psychological torture. Of course. I, mean, I,
6: I think that some of the things that, that you, you are all saying uh, that are coming from slightly different points is that that in, in a way, what you're doing when you're... And I can see this more clearly with um, Homer than with James, but I think it goes for both. And the, the adapter is having a conversation with the original material. Um, and actually, that that works in in two ways I mean that's to say you know we all know that Homer had no conception of the inner psychology of anybody let alone Helen but so but we know that and that's we're not trying to recreate a world that is not ours we're trying to talk to and about and with Homer in a way that has that uh, yet on the other hand if we're if we're a very foolish and dumb interlocutors we won't make Homer or James or anybody say anything that's of mm. any interest. Yes. A conversation has to be an intelligent conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's not just about ventriloquizing some poor old work of literature that's 100 or 2,000 or 3,000 years old. Um, but, and it, it, that doesn't mean that anything goes. Um, because the art of having a good conversation is that you kind of listen to what, The text is saying, but but you're still it's still your no you know in the end you know Homer's long dead, Euripides is long dead, James is long dead, and he's ah you know we can we can do what you know we have no responsibility to them. It's just that we we just look very foolish if we have a very silly conversation. Yes, I mean
5: I presume for all the Euripides and Shakespeares of history, there have probably been terrible adaptations of Homer. From in the 15th, 16th, they definitely were in the 18th <coughs> it, 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 it's, we've forgotten them all and, that, and that's, and so now of course we're in the same situation. I think it's a little different to Alan's point about James and you could put Flaubert and Edith Wharton in, because what seems that, that sort of the growth of the psychological novel, novel yeah. presents I, I, I find sometimes with literary adaptation on, on screen film or TV, that there's a weird, but they're too, there's almost, they're almost too similar, so there's a sort mm. of you can't quite find the authorial vision of the adapter as a distinct thing from the novel. But then, why not just read the novel? So, I get a little—I conf- get more confused there. If I'm to be honest, I mean, I loved *The Line of Beauty*, and I chose not to watch the television thing because I didn't—and I remember at the time. Or I if I, I chose, but I just didn't—I didn't watch it. And, I, and now I'd like to see it. Having spoken to Alan about it, but—but but it. Well, I've watched and it and very recently. That Zadie Smith's *Northwest* that's coming out now, for example. Mm. I enjoyed the book very much. I don't know what the TV what its role is, except that it sort of knows the book is well known and very respected and therefore it's a good thing to do because people will watch it because yes. it's a title. Uh, what is the, what's the film, whereas with Le Carre, I would argue that because Le Carre I think is coming out of Graham green and, and, and a deep understanding of film and, and he's a genre writer, which I think is an interesting word that may be worth plonking in here. Yep. Um, there's, some, there's a gap there where yep. I can find, as Hitchcock would often say, the authorial way of approaching that story that is different and uniquely cinematic. Does yes, that make any sense? It, yes,
3: it does. It's something that I wanted to sort of bring the conversation around to a little bit about the sort of quality of writing and whether or not very writing of an extron- extraordinarily high quality uh, such as Henry James or indeed Allen's, makes for good Uh, a good visual adaptation where you've got this kind of what I think I've called the the kind of verbal deficit kicks in where you're used to a particular verbal texture or a particular verbal reality. Proust, for example, um, to be quite elevated for a moment and at the other end I don't. Well, almost anything really. Raymond Chandler that, well Raymond, Ch- well, Raymond well, Chandler is a very fine. very good writer actually a oh, fantastic would, writer uh, but
5: totally pared down leaving totally space totally pared down I mean, the, the perhaps Ian Fleming who isn't of, a writer The Age of, of Innocence the, which Martin Scorsese a wonderful film director yeah. falls on his face yeah. on The Age of Innocence he, because the beauty of her w- world psychologically he tries to replace with opulence it seems to
3: me yes. that's quite common that's, flaw yes a visual opulence yeah. to replace the verbal texture or the verbal opulence this that you're going of, to get from the book it's
5: an exaggeration which is like you
3: know
4: the constant up upgrading of the status of people. So <laughs>
3: yes.
4: um, every Jane Austen adaptation you see, people living far bigger. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, because, because yeah. They, to satisfy. They've got a bigger range of frocks too, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. I remember. To satisfy it, it. some, some notion. Yeah. Of the sort of what Henry James had called the visitable past, you know, which mm-hmm. has actually been established yeah. by other films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and, well, and,
6: it, and also uh, by a whole load of modern practices of tourism yeah. and. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, exactly it, yeah. it's it's feeding off. Going to the National Trust yes. house, back into the yeah. 18th century, yes. And, yes, and you don't want to go down to the local rectory. No.
3: But, it, but it's actually sort of fights against the, yes. the books, I think. No, I mean it's certainly not an original point I make. I mean it, it's 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 a cliche almost of this kind of of discussion Sorry, or it's... talking about this kind. No, <laughs> I mean what I'm saying. What. I'm saying a glacier that I, sort of, rather bad writing can make for a very, very, very good film and a very good visual experience or a good dramatic experience. Whereas the better the writing gets, the harder it's going to be to convey That's the vision that actually has been made for that particular verbal texture. Uh,
5: anecdotally, and I don't yet know exactly where it is, but Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, a hugely admired psychological novel, um, was instantly snapped up. By God yep. knows who, an, Ameri- an American television or film company, and it, it, the years have passed and the years have passed, and I think something was even made, like a, pr- a, a pilot that no one ever saw, and it, it is it has proved a sort of unfilmable a thing, or they've never managed to, and it's and it's a perfect example in a non-period way, where the, it's j- they just haven't found the way to release what is a really wonderful psychological novel right. into, into sc- onto screen. I think sure. it's tricky. Sure.
6: However, kind of low grade it is there's still something sort of important about the source text. And you notice that... Um, you know, let's, go down, let's go down to Miss Marple, right? Yep. Now, When, you see, a, when you see a Miss Marple film and you, uh, on the telly and you look at the credits, you already know from its, from its power whether it's going to be one of those Miss Marple films which say, based on a novel by Agatha Christie, or alternatively, based on characters... Created oh, yes. by Agatha Christie. And here we are, you know, Miss Marple, we can get through in an hour, um, you know, even reading the whole damn book, but she's still, but real Miss Marple novels are better on the telly than Miss Marple lookalikes done by the same script writers. Oh. Well, I think that's quite, you know, that's, that's always a bit of a shock because we know they're not that good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't so this is purely
4: to do with plot. Whether, whether it acting. must be just yeah. to
6: do it, that Agatha Christie was just better at plotting than the committee, you know, in uh, trying mm. to work out how to uh, distribute a kind of Agatha Christie set of yeah. lookalike characters into a plot which they're no good at doing.
3: Have any of you ever read a novel by somebody called Colin Dexter? Um, well, he. he well, thing thing I had goes. to bring this up here because it, what you've been saying just made me think so so much that Colin Dexter. I've got, I mean, all the programs so far there have been three phenomenally successful and popular series. I think three that I can think of based based on characters invented by Colin Dexter. They've so the, sto- <laughs> I mean, first we had Morse. Morse was the first, wasn't it? Then yeah. then Lewis, yeah. L- Lewis the offshoot of Morse. Then Endeavour the offshoot of. They seem to me to have got better as they go. I mean, Lewis...
6: You you haven't looked
3: at the... Lewis Lewis is infinitely better than Morse, and Endeavour the best ever. Oh, Um, no. All right. right. Well, I'm glad... I'm glad to hear some, some joining in from the audience, because I, uh, we're, we're, time, time is rushing ahead. We've had a, a marvellous conversation, I would like to talk all afternoon um, to these three, but uh, I would also like you to have a chance to ask your questions or put your views... Uh, but um, Well, no, let, let's keep it to your questions, please, for the moment, anyway. Um, so if you would like to ask a question, please, they'll, 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 uh, there's a chap with a microphone at the back who will uh, thrust it into your hands. Um, there, I have a gentleman over there on the far... My far left, your far right, that's it.
5: Thank you. A uh, question primarily directed at Alan. Now that authors know that there is film and cinema and um, 3D spectaculars, um, do they try not to, or do they try to, write their novels with an <gasps> adaptation already in mind, that, that somebody might take their character and do something with him or her?
4: You quite often read a a review, a a disparaging review, of a novel which says that it seems to have been written with an eye on on, on a a screen adaptation. And there probably are, and again, possibly genre writers more who do that. Um, I mean, I'm quite interested in the things which resist um, big adapted. I'm thinking of myself, actually, but... uh,
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> does that answer your question? I mean, but, uh, It's a 64 billion dollar question and he's just said no. Uh, <laughs> no sorry, uh, being increasingly interested
4: in in writing sort of decentered narratives which uh, which don't actually resolve themselves in the way that cinema sort of requires and my last book The Stranger's Child was looked at by several people when it came, came out with a view to adapting it but they, they sort of saw that it couldn't really be, be, I mean I think it could be done by someone very imaginative rather like uh, Reese indeed who made that film of um time regained you know, oh yes, yes.
3: Ruiz, uh, Raul Ruiz, well, yeah. Ruiz yes, yeah. marvellous. it was,
4: it was marvellous. extremely
3: imaginative and, yeah. uh,
4: and, very beautiful you know, it was own, it, it, the conversation with,
3: with Proust sort of weirdly Proustian time it was it. a very intelligent one mm. yeah. anyway um, thank you all very very much it's been a wonderful afternoon and I, I know that our audience has enjoyed every minute of it too uh, thanks to David Farr Mary Beard and Alan Hollinghurst thank you all
2: listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of our 2016 london lit weekend mini series until the normal weekly podcast resumes on january 5th you can catch up of course on previous episodes and visit our website the hyphen tls.co.uk there's plenty there to keep you busy and you can do all the usual too: follow us on twitter like us on facebook and review us on itunes see you in 2017